We've been exploring the theme of wisdom this year. We've been in the year of wisdom, and we've been doing that both in our weekend sermons, but also in our day-to-day lives. And it makes me ask the question, after doing a year of wisdom, do you feel, do you still feel like a stranger to wisdom? Right? Because we can learn and study and do all this, but what, what words or sounds would rise up from you if I were to ask you how your wisdom is? Would you groan? Would you sigh? Would you kind of just say, meh? Would you give an exclamation of some sort? Would you do what a lot of people do? And if I asked you a question, you would just look back down at your phone and keep typing. Would you give an aha? Would you give a shout of joy? Because what I think is interesting is that we are surrounded with, and you probably received some at Christmas, so many smart devices galore, but do we feel in any way wiser? You can have smart devices, but not be smart. And so we went into this year of wisdom knowing that we all need wisdom, not just in our major life decisions, but we need it in our day-to-day activity. We need it in our day-to-day relationships and choices. And we learned in this last year that wisdom is defined as the sound handling, the sound handling of God, of life in God's world, seeing the day-to-day from the perspective of all things subject to and ordered by God's will and corresponding to his values, his principles, his perspectives. And we saw that in the book of Job and the suffering he experienced and how he processed it. We saw it in the book of Micah and the injustices that people can experience in our role as Christians. We saw that in the book of 1 John as we looked at what it meant to believe in Jesus and love one another and allow that to be a practice. And we saw that in the book of Habakkuk. And so as we intentionally approach approach wisdom as a theme one last time, I have these questions. What will our pattern of choices, actions, and expressions be as we approach 2019? How are you going to live wisdom? Are you going to live wisdom? And those are big questions, but that's the right posture to have with wisdom literature is to come at it with questions, to come at it with God. What am I supposed to do with this? And so to finish this year, we're going to dip our toes into the first seven verses of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter one, verses one to seven. You can turn there right now. And just as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background to wisdom literature in general. We've talked a lot about this, but it's good to review. And the first thing I want to remind you is that wisdom literature originated and was nurtured in family and community. Family was the strongest social domain and was used to shape and reorient life in the way of the community. And because of that, it meant that everyone was intimately bound up with the welfare of the community. So you taught these things in family, parents to children, so that the community would grow and people would serve one another. And it was an accumulation of the insight of all of God's people on how to live in a way that honors God and honors people which was the core of the covenant. It was the core of what it meant to live out your faith. One proverb that's not in this book of Proverbs, but it's a later Jewish proverb, says it this way. A path can only be formed by the passage of many feet. No lone individual can form a path. Which was a recognition that what you are following in wisdom is a path that your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and our forefathers have walked before under the covenant of God and walked and then passed it on through imitation. And that we are supposed to live into that. We're supposed to practice that. So wisdom went beyond the perspective of an efficient and successful attainment of my personal goals and my individual goals. It was supposed to be for the beneficial impact of the community in service to the community. 
The second things in Proverbs specifically is it was the movement of the young past adolescence into a world outside the profile of family. Because as a child, the only world you lived in was your immediate family and maybe your extended family. But as you grow up, now you're entering into the world, even back then. And so that's why the book of Proverbs would talk about work and kings and queens, the aspects of government of wives and husbands, of righteous and foolish people, of lazy and active people, of poor and rich people, talking about economy and work ethic, of core things like God, and then of very practical things like dogs. And so Proverbs was for a junior high boy more than it was for adults. So what you're getting for the end of the year is a junior high message, because that's what you deserve. I'm just kidding. But, uh, but I like what Bruce Walke says. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he says, we're reminded at all ages that we are covenant children bonded with God in a commitment, and we are all headed into maturity at all times. And so because of that, you need a junior high message now as much as you did in junior high. But the third thing about wisdom is it always had to do with everyday living. It was Proverbs, um, short poetic discourses that were all about everyday life, practical. And we need practical things as we come into another year. And so the wisdom of Proverbs, though, it's practical, but it's not a success manual. It doesn't plug us into a system that guarantees success. And that's a mistake that a lot of Christians tend to make is that we read the scriptures and we read wisdom as something that's going to give us happiness and success. But it doesn't provide us with methods. It doesn't provide us with formulas. It provides us with God himself. It provides you with access to knowing the God of the angel armies, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it shows us in relationship with God and in relationship to a network of people around us who have been pursuing God. And then lastly, the thing with wisdom is you show you possess it when you put it into action. You possess wisdom when you actually act on it, because we can possess the ability to think intelligently without having the disposition to use it. You can be smart and then never do anything with it. And that's best seen in caricatures. And so the book of Proverbs is going to draw out caricatures of this. They're going to draw out people that epitomize what a fool looks like and what a wise person looks like. And it's going to show you that contrast and draw it out. And we actually relate to that very well because in our modern day, we tend to associate the same things with characters you'll see on TV shows or movies or comics or stories. And it's trying to show us that this is more than good advice. It's God's invitation to learn wisdom and to practice it. And so we're going to dive into Proverbs chapter 1. If you haven't opened your Bible there yet or pulled out your smartphone, Alexa, open to Proverbs 1. Google, Proverbs 1. Siri, open to Proverbs 1. I realize that we actually have more power up here from the stage to activate your phones than than I ever thought before. So I'm going to start doing that every time. And if your phone turns to it, you need to be like, it worked. But uh, we're going to go through Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read verse 1 first and just talk about it very briefly. And then we're going to spend all of our time in verses 2 to 7. And one of the things that tends to happen when I preach here at Bridgeway is the other pastors, Lance, Parnell, Brian, that preach, they make fun of me a lot because I always end up talking about Old Testament or Israel or Hebrew. And so um, I know that it's really just beard envy because all of them can't grow a beard. And uh, But but really... Uh, what I'm going to do to finish off this year is to kind of like finish the year, right? I'm going to teach you 12 Hebrew words 
within this today. And so you don't have to memorize them. It's not going to be that big. We're not that nerdy. But I'm going to get 12 Hebrew words in, one for each month. And so, um, and this text did that naturally. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So it starts by saying what this is. It's a style of teaching Proverbs that are meant to, Proverbs have always been meant to provoke thought. They're to get you thinking, and they're supposed to be subversive, to get under our skin and kind of poke you or thrust at you with wit and paradox and common sense and symbolism. It's kind of like what my father-in-law does every time I go to their house, that he will literally crawl on the ground and sneak up behind me and like jab me behind the knee or on the side. And I'm always like, what are you doing? But it's this kind of sneaking in to prod at you. And that's what the Proverbs are doing. And again, if you're a junior high boy, that's the kind of like attention you need to listen to the things that you need to hear. But then it tells you that it comes from Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now you have to understand that if you read the book of Proverbs, most likely only the first nine chapters are actually from Solomon because you're going to see it's going to mention Proverbs coming from sages during the time of King Hezekiah, which is later um, a king named Lemuel and other people that are even outside of Israel. The reason why it's mentioning that these are the Proverbs of Solomon is because he was the figurehead of wisdom genre in Israel because he was the king that after he took over the throne from his father, David, the first thing he did is he asked God for wisdom. Give me wisdom to rule. Give me wisdom to do what's right. Now, he was successful in some ways, and then he went into foolishness in some ways, which is why some of this makes sense that he can teach from both sides. But he's the figurehead, which is why his name comes up. I could do a whole sermon on that, but let's keep going into the text. Let's read verses 2 to 7. It says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, as we dive in, the first thing I want to draw your eyes to is the verbs that are in those six verses, because the verbs are actually telling you so much. Lots of times we don't care about most of English or any other language that we hear, but the verbs matter. And here the verbs are bursting with action terms. And you might be going action terms. These seem a little bit more like above my head, but it's trying to tell you that you need to not only know these things and understand them, and it's saying that in verse 2, we have to receive them, verse 3, we have to give them to certain people, verse 4, we have to hear and add and obtain, in verse 5. And what these are called is they're called infinitive verbs. You're not going to care about that. It basically means to verb, to verb. So to jump, to walk, to eat, to know, to understand, to obtain. And the reason why that matters is because infinitives are always purpose statements. They're codes of approach and they're postures that you take in trying to live out practice and skill. And so it's trying to give you a purpose statement in what you're doing with wisdom. And it's urging you to embrace wisdom from something that's outside of you, that's above you, because it's coming from God, but it's familiar to you so that you'll hear and obey and you'll add these to your life. And it's telling you two very specific things that you need to hear in those verbs. It's telling you that this comes through revelation, 
meaning that God is going to speak and impart this to you, but it's also telling you that this is going to come from discipleship. Someone is going to imitate this to you. And so it's trying to draw your eyes and your heart both ways. But within it, it's trying to help us understand that this includes an eager search for God himself. Because all these terms are telling you, you have to seek the one that is the beginning. If you look in the New Testament in James chapter one, verse five, he speaks very much like the book of Proverbs. And he says that this is something you can ask of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you where it's showing you that we all have access to wisdom to allow it to shape our life as we access it habitually and intentionally. And they confirm to us that we can engage with life this way. So the verbs matter, but now let's dive into what it's telling us that we can know and understand and obtain and hear and add. So the first one is it says to know wisdom in verse two and instruction. Now the word wisdom is your first Hebrew word, chokmah. Go ahead and say it, chokmah. And you got to get some spit on the person in front of you. That's how you know you're saying Hebrew, right? Chokmah. And it's really this idea to have skill in living to have ability, to have know-how. And it's going off this idea that God used wisdom, skill to create the world like a skilled artisan or a stonemason. Often it was used of the people that did art in the Old Testament. And so it's taking that skill and saying that this is developed through experience and it builds this competence for a purposeful life, giving order and meaning in what you're doing. But that's a little bit too philosophical. Let's take it down a level. It's knowledge that helps one know how to act and how to speak in different situations. It's that ability to avoid problems and that skill to handle them when those problems come. Or if somebody says something to you, it helps you know how to react, when to say something, when not to say something. And if you go through most of Proverbs, they're going to bring up things about what the fool does with his words and what the wise person does, how they speak and how they shouldn't speak. And it will use all sorts of different examples, again, using caricatures. Now, a lot of us, we can put our own self in that chair and we can go, I can think of a lot of stories when I should have said something or not said something, or I should have done something or not done something. You can fill in the blank for that story. But I know that one of the best caricatures we see in our modern day, and it's actually a little old, is Lucille Ball. If you remember the TV show, I Love Lucy, she was someone that epitomized someone that never said the right thing at the right time and was never doing the right thing. Now, my wife and I, we love, I love Lucy. Actually, our daughter, we have two boys and a girl. Our daughter is named Lucy and we named her after Lucille Ball. And that's not what we were going to name her. But when my wife was in labor, there was an I Love Lucy marathon on the TV for eight hours while we were doing it. So we were like, well, it's the Lord, obviously, (laughs) you know, like God works in that way, right? And so we named her Lucy and then we've been watching them again recently because they're on Amazon Prime. And, uh, and, and recently we were like, oh, we should let Lucy finally watch these. And then we were like, wait a second, our daughter is already very sassy. And if you watch Lucille Ball, you'll be more sassy. But again, we think of that show and you think actually of her husband and what he was always saying because he's like, Lucy, you've got some splaining to do in his Cuban accent. Or he would also say, of all the crazy things you have done, Lucy. And again, it's all these references to someone that's not functioning with this life skill, this ability to know when to do something and then when not to do something. Now, of course, in the show, things always work out, but that's not how it is in life. 
But where we see wisdom functioning in this skill and ability is in different areas of our life that we go expecting specialized wisdom. So when you go to take your car to a mechanic, you expect them to have the ability and the skill to know when to change your tires and when to take your engine out. Or if you go to the Genius Bar at Apple or AT&T or Verizon to get your device fixed because you're like, I don't understand it, that when you go, you expect them to know how to troubleshoot these things. Or even more importantly, if you go to a dentist or a doctor, you want them to have the ability and the skill and the wisdom to know when to have you do surgery and when not, when to take a medicine and when not, right? You want them to have that ability and that skill. And you're going to see that that's the type of wisdom it's asking us to understand. But the bigger piece you have to know is that wisdom in Scripture is always known as an attribute of God, which means you truly encounter that ability and that skill when you know the one who epitomizes and demonstrates it. And that's God. So again, it's taking you back to knowing God. But let's look at that next word. We have to know wisdom, but we also have to know training or instruction. Some Bibles will say reproof. And that's the Hebrew word musar. And it means to to have... um. And, and, and that training and reproof is featured because, remember, the goal of the book is for middle schoolers who are unsuspecting and they need training on how to be warned of the dangers and susceptibility they're going to have in temptation. And so training and reproof and instruction is assuming that you have an authority above you that's going to direct your life. So as a child, you've always had that as your parents. But as you grow into an adult, you realize, okay, now what's the authority? Is it me? And this is the mistake a lot of us make as we become 18 or 13 is you realize that actually the authority is still God. It always has been. And so that means that we have to move from having just head knowledge about something to allowing it to shape our lives, to not just know it, but to allow it to shape our lives. Now, I know I'm bringing this up too soon after Christmas, but eating and dieting and healthy foods is the area where you see this happen and break down all the time, right? Because so many of us, as kids and adults, we know the things we should eat and not eat. We're very clear on what too much sugar is, right? Except at Christmas. We're very clear on what too much of uh, carbs is or, or too much fat or saturated fat. And yet, when it comes down to it, we'll eat it. And we'll eat it in abundance. At the four o'clock service, right after I had preached this, me and one of the security guards were talking back in the green room as I went and started having a large piece of apple pie in the back. And he goes, see, you can't even practice it right now. And I'm like, amen. Let's keep eating. Right? But it's that whole thing of, look, we know, but to actually be trained makes a big difference, which is why people go to fitness coaches, which is why Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and all these things come in because they bring in a training and an instruction with the knowledge we have, but that we can't put into practice. And so this is telling us that we need formative instruction because discipline needs to shape us because character doesn't come natural. It doesn't come natural to us and we need to be shaped and corrected and trained. So we're called to know these skills of life and how wisdom can shape us. But now look at the next line. It says that we not only know wisdom and instruction, but we understand words of insight. Imre bina is the Hebrew. Imre bina. Words of insight. And that means to discern between or have a sense of what are good words and what are foolish words. To know the difference between what is good and what is foolish. Now, we do this with a lot of things in our life all the time. Like a lot of us know what coffee is, Starbucks, and then what good coffee is, Pete's. <laughs> a lot of us, if you're a wine person, you know the difference between what's a good or what's wine, like two-buck chuck at Trader Joe's, or what's good wine out in Napa and Sonoma, 
or Marlboro, New Zealand. I like that. Um, or, or meat, if you're a meat person. You know what eating meat is like and then what eating good meat is like, where it just falls off the bone, right? And we do that with so many things in life, and it's telling us we need to do that with words and words of insight. And again, you see this best with caricatures. You'll see it all throughout Proverbs of the foolish person with their words, but we see it in our modern day. In our modern day, a great TV show that epitomizes this is The Office with Michael Scott, He's the manager of a paper company called Dunder Mifflin, and he is somebody that is represented as having no words of insight, constantly speaking nonsense, and rarely bringing anything constructive. Let me share with you a couple things he says (laughs) that are appropriate for church. He says this one time after talking with the CEO of his company, sometimes I will start a sentence and I don't even know where I am going. I just hope I will find it along the way. Or in another time, talking about managing his company, he says, would I rather be feared or love? Easy. Both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> and I'm like, you are so stupid. And then in another time when he's, he's uh, on a date with a lady, he says, you know, I'm kind of an early bird and I'm a night owl. So I'm wise and I have worms. <laughs> and he'll do that constantly. He'll mix idioms. He'll mix common statements because he's just speaking nonsense. And the, the scripture is trying to tell us we need to have instruction on how to discern between what are wise words and what are foolish words to be shaped in how we speak and how we manage life with one another. Oh, I'm out of, out of order in my notes. Um, and so as we discern between words, that becomes incredibly hard in our day and age because a lot of us, we can have a thought or we can have something we want to say. And then what happens is we go on to this thing called Rabbi Google. And what's scary is not what you find people will say, but how many people will say the same thing as you, even though you're wrong. Because you can go out there and people have opinions that are incorrect. And yet we'll go, oh, look, somebody else agrees with me. I found a YouTube video. I found a post. I found a blog. And that's what's scary because you can't Google wisdom anymore, which is why you need the wisdom from above to discern between words of insight. But let's keep going. Verse three tells us that we also need to receive instruction in wise dealings. And that's this word called haskel, haskel, wise dealings. And that's wise dealings that do suggest a prosperity and it's a skill that brings about success, but it has more to do with your reputation and your good sense and how you use it. So it's action-based, it's outcome-centered. It's trying to show you how to be down to earth with what you know and how to use it, but not just to use it for yourself. So what you'll see happen is in the next line, it's going to tell you what to have wise dealings with. It's going to say, you need to have haskel, but you need to have it in righteousness, sedek, justice, mishpat, and equity, meshrim. Sedek, mishpat, meshrim. And you're, you're needing to have this success and reputation with these words and their concepts that have to do with how we manage life with one another. So it's not about having wise dealings and how to be successful for yourself, which is how a lot of Christian leaders have used it before and how a lot of businessmen will use it. It's not about that. It's about what's successful and how I deal with everybody socially in all things, not just legal matters. Cause when we think of justice, we only think of legal matters and my rights for me, but it's in legal matters and practical matters for all people as we're all under God's covenant together. And so you're going to see that they're looking for people that are going to judge rightly. 
They're going to be judges at the city gates who are going to show mercy in the same way God shows mercy. And you're going to act in righteousness in the same way God shows righteousness. But not only that, we're supposed to have wise dealing with equity. Showing equity in the same way God shows evenness and fairness and his justice to people. You see that in two different pieces in scripture. One you see is in the book of Job, where as God starts confronting Job, he asks Job's, he asks Job's, (laughs) he asks Job about his jobs. He asks Job about, are you able to discern with when somebody should be judged and when they shouldn't? And that's a heavy question because God's going, do you realize how difficult it is and yet I'm God and I can handle it to look between two people and decide. But then you see it even better in a parable that Jesus gives in the New Testament where he does the parable of a guy that owns property and he goes out early in the morning and picks people to come and work on his land. And he says, I'm going to pay you a full day's wages for working today. And then he goes out a couple hours later and gets more guys to come and work. And he tells them, I'm going to pay you a full day's wage for coming and starting to work right now. And then he goes out a couple more hours later. And then in the end, he goes out like an hour or two left in the workday. And again, invites guys to come in and work and he's going to pay them the same wage for a full day's work. And at the end of the day, when he's giving out all the wages, the people that have been there all day in their justice go, that's not fair. That doesn't make any sense because we worked all day. They only worked two hours and we're getting the same pay. And he goes, am I not giving you what I promised you? Why is it unfair that I'm blessing somebody and showing mercy? And you see Jesus is talking about the same thing and we're supposed to function in that type of wise dealing, not just looking out for ourselves. I like what Timothy Keller says about this because he quotes another guy named Neil Platinga and then he gives an illustration of what this looked like. He says, the webbing together of God, humans and all creation in equity, fulfillment and delight, that is what Hebrew prophets call shalom. We translate it peace, but shalom means universal flourishing wholeness and delight. It describes a rich state of affairs in which natural means, um, in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are faithfully and fruitfully employed all under the arc of God's love. And then Keller says this, he says, let me illustrate it. If I threw a thousand threads onto the table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They would just be threads laying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been woven over, under, and around, and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. God made the world with billions of people, but he didn't make them all to be an aggregation, working by themselves. Rather, he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, interdependent relationship to one another. That's the type of wise dealing that God is calling us to. That's the Haskell, where you function in righteousness and justice and equity, not just for you, but for all. And so we're shaped in how we manage life with one another, and we're transformed in these areas of characters. We're trying to demonstrate community loyalty and manage all the wrongs around us and not try to destroy community all around us. Now, we're going to move into verses 4 and 5, and the thing I want you to understand about those verses is they're going to take us deeper into the various things that people need to obtain life skills and the formation needed to navigate life. But now, it's not going to just tell you what they learn, but how and when and where we learn from. And so it says in verse 4 that we give to the simple ones prudence, or some Bibles will say shrewdness, and that's the Hebrew word orma, orma. 
And that means to be cunning or clever in the ways that you achieve or accomplish a goal, to have foresight and almost strategy. We would use the words today of being innovative or even being creative in how you approach this. And a prudent person, they're going to heed instruction. They're going to be cautious. They're going to believe. They're not going to believe everything that they're told because they're, they're a little bit wiser. And they know they have knowledge, but they don't flaunt it. And it allows them to look ahead and take evasive or a strategic action and know when to speak and when to be silent. And they do that all towards a goal of honoring God and honoring others. And again, that prudence is communal. But you see it well, well visualized in the book of Esther. So if you don't know the book of Esther, it's a story during the exile when Esther is a Jewish woman that becomes queen to the Persian king. And she... She's, um, she's Jewish. Her uncle, a guy named Mordecai, is also Jewish. And there's a bad guy named Haman in the book that's a kind of right-hand man of the king. And he doesn't like Mordecai because he won't bow down to him. And so he gets an edict to be signed by the king because the king's a buffoon to wipe out all the Jewish people. And, of course, Mordecai responds in agony and he, he puts on um, mourning clothes and lamenting and he's crying out at the gates and he ends up having this dialogue via servants with Esther where he tells her, God has put you in your role for a time such as this. And if, and if you don't do it, God will find another way. And she shows this prudence as you come in because first she has the humility to let her uncle speak to the queen that way. She's teachable and that she's willing to go forward even though she's afraid. And she even has the prudence to go, please pray for me fast. Me and my servants are going to pray and fast and we're going to figure this out. And then you see that foresight and that prudence as she goes to the king and she sets up these multiple meals so that she can kind of get the king kind of prepped for what she wants to bring up. And even within those, she keeps flattering the king, talking about his wisdom and his discretion and his oversight of the kingdom and all that's garbage. But she's using it to then speak to him about what's going to happen. But what's interesting in the book of Esther is that Haman had done the same thing chapters before. He had used prudence to then get the king to sign the edict in the first place. So you end up seeing that prudence and cunning can be both a virtue or a vice. It matters on how you use it. But it has to do with self-control and it has to do with the experience. And again, it has to do with, do you know prudence from the Lord Or do you know prudence from the cunning that you use to try to control your lives? Because the term shrewd and the term cunning is also used of the serpent. And so again, you have to be cautious with that one. And yet simple ones need prudence. They need to be given prudence. But look at the second part of verse four. It says, you want to give to the youth knowledge, da'at, and misma, discretion, so knowledge, da'at, discretion, misma. And, and you want to learn knowledge. And knowledge is really easy to explain because it's the mere observation we use to understand things. So if I put a beaker of something in front of you and I go, tell me what it is, you're going to look at it, you're going to smell it, maybe you'll taste it. If you're a junior high boy, you will. It, you'll touch it, right? And you'll see if it makes any sounds when it, you're using your senses. And that's where knowledge starts from is to use your observational senses. But it's supposed to be paired with discretion. And discretion always tended to mean good sense or resourcefulness. But I want you to understand something. Knowledge is a means to, to finding out and maintaining character and wisdom. But it's a means. It's not the end. And what happens in our world, and it happens among Christians, is we spend more time on the means than the end. 
we spend so much time gaining more knowledge and then doing nothing with it. You read more books, you listen to more podcasts, you go to more services, and then no transformation happens because you're focusing on just learning more and having more data, but you're not allowing it to go into action, which is where wisdom lies. We're supposed to live out what we learn. We're supposed to live out in wisdom. Sometimes knowledge causes too much indecision, and that's part of the problem. But together, these things have to do with knowing your way about, planning your course, and being able to read between the line, between the lines. And this is where we're supposed to take knowledge and discretion and do something with it. You're supposed to teach and train. If you learn something, if you gain something in knowledge, the best way to start using it is to teach it to someone else. If you know something about someone and God has put it on you to pray for that person, you need to pray for that person. If you know something you can share or report in order to help something out, we're supposed to do stuff with the knowledge we have. It's not supposed to just sit within us. But discretion is that ability to choose between what is good and what is not. What is helpful. And I think the one way we tend to uh, remember the word discretion is every time a movie comes up and it shows you the rating and it says, viewer discretion is advised. And it says it in that voice. It never says, viewer discretion is advised. Right? And what it's trying to tell you is, here's the rating. Here's what's in this. And you have to know enough about yourself and enough about what these things are to know whether or not you can handle this. And that is prompting you before you go into the show. Now, I had one of those proud slash horrible parenting moments where my son was around seven years old. His name is George. And he wanted to watch Jurassic Park because he was playing Lego Jurassic Park. And, you know, my wife and I talked about it and we were like, we think that's okay. (laughs) And so I sat down with him. I tried to explain more of the movie and how intense it could be. And then we sat down to watch it. And as we're watching it, um, he's kind of doing okay. And then we get to the part where they get to the park and they're lowering the cow down into the velociraptor cage. So this isn't even a scary part, really, because they don't show anything except the cage come up all torn apart. But right, right as that's happening, he goes, you know what? Let's turn it off. I'll watch it another time. And he showed that discretion to go, I can't handle what I think is going to happen. And so I'm not going to do it. And in my mind, I'm going, we're not even at the scary parts yet. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Right. And, and, but it's that thing of having the discretion on knowing how to judge and make sure to not misjudge what you can handle, especially with what you do with the knowledge that you get. And so knowledge and discretion, the things we give and the things we receive with those matter. But let's go to the last one, verse five. It says, let the wise and understanding hear and add and obtain learning. Lechak. Lechak is to know truth, but it's really to know truth about God himself. And you learn that from gleaning it from the revelation of God and from wise counsel and instruction. And so you position yourself to receive teaching again, not just in formal teaching settings, but in all aspects of life. So it means as an adult, you need to be willing to learn from a child, which Jesus showed that all the time. As a husband, you need to be able to learn from your wife, right? Wives, we need to be able to learn from our husbands, even if you think they're speaking nonsense, right? And all the different atmospheres, we realize that we can learn, but we're really trying to focus on learning about God himself in the areas we can grow. But then not only are we hearing and adding learning, but also guidance, which is a word takbulat. 
And it's actually a term that literally means rope pulling with the idea of steering a ship. Think of the movie Moana, Disney, of when she's like moving a ship with all these ropes and like swinging around and it never works like that, right? And it's the idea of as you're steering the ropes, it becomes an idiom of when you know the ropes, it's the idea of you know how much to pull and how little to pull in order to get the ship to turn just right to go exactly where you want. And so it wants you to learn that guidance so that you understand how to to solve problems and meet the challenges that will face you, that you know just how much and how little with all these things that we've been talking about and you're using the truth and understanding we have of God. And that means asking questions and that means realizing that understanding is often more understanding than getting, is sorry, that means that understanding is often more important than acquiring those answers. Because sometimes we have to realize that the journey to learn and to figure out that balance is part of the understanding. That's part of the knowledge. That's part of the wisdom we get. It's not always about trying to get to a final answer, which is why one of the things I've learned as I've kept exploring scripture is that it's okay to have paradox. It's okay to have mystery. It's okay to not figure it out 100% because part of the journey of continuing to look is what grows me. And then it's what makes me practice wisdom and take it into my life. And so from these, you end up seeing us kind of wrap down these methods of what we learn and but how we learn it and when. And you're seeing that certain characters have now been introduced, right? We saw youth come in who are immature and they need guidance. The wise come in in verse 5 who cannot escape their need for further instruction and yet they still need it. The simple, who some Bibles will say naive, which suggests an openness to influence and instruction, but that means that they're still able to be taught and shaped. And then you're going to see in verse 7, it's going to talk about fools who delude themselves by thinking they've escaped and have no need for all of this. Now, one other piece that I'll just pass by quickly is verse 6 will tell you that you want to understand proverbs and sayings and words of wise ones and riddles. And that's giving you a mere breakdown of the book and telling you there are so many different literary types that instruct us in this. And you're going to encounter them in Proverbs and in wisdom. But I want you to see verse 7 more than anything else. Because where do we find this multifaceted, multilayered wisdom? Where do we begin? It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And I want you to know that in the ancient Near East, there's a lot of wisdom literature. And the Bible is distinctive in being the only one that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It stands apart. And the beginning is not a stage that one starts at and then leaves from. It's the first and controlling principle. It becomes the fundamental choice. It becomes the authority by which your worldview is shaped and how you practice life. Why do you do this or that? Because of the beginning. It's the authority. And it starts with your perspective of God. But that term fear of God is really hard for us to understand because respect seems much too weak but dread or terror seems too strong and it's not fear the way we associate it because we fear evil, violent, or abusive people. We, feel, we fear sharks and snakes and animals that follow an instinct to kill. We fear punishment and pain and death. We fear losing something like our phone or someone and yet that's not the type of fear it's talking about because fear of the Lord means to honor and adore and respect God in such a way that it's not a fear that makes you run. It's a fear that makes you bow. And it means that we approach him and his wisdom in the way it deserves. 
And I think for a lot of people, there's little or no fear of God because we don't understand who we're dealing with. And sometimes it's that we don't understand his justice and his righteousness. And sometimes it's we don't understand his love, which is why I think Martin Luther, out of so many different scholars and pastors and writers, I think he nails it the best in talking about this fear because he says it's the fear that a child has for his father and mother. He says he's thinking of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his parents and who dearly wants to please them. And he has a fear or an anxiety of offending the ones that he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even of punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the ones who, in the child's world, is the source of his security and love. And see, that's the thing, is that we, it's not trying to say that we don't recognize that God is just and that God does punish. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way, but it's understanding that when it comes to wisdom and practicing life, you don't practice your Christian faith because of a fear of hell. You don't practice it because you think that you're going to get punished or experience suffering if you don't. You practice it because of this reverent love and fear you have for the God that you can know. When you see that this is the person that changes my life and I want to live to please him. And because of that, I'm going to do these things or not do these things, not because I'm going to get punished but because he deserves it, because he's my Lord and my savior. And so this gets to the heart from which all of wisdom flows, the position of our relationship with God. It's a knowledge that's remarkably intimate and it's a relationship that's dependent on revelation. And this is not a relationship that means embracing a book and thinking the pages and the book's structure is the most important. This is not about admiring the people that are specialists in the book. This is not coming, this is not adoring the place that you can come to to learn from the book. This is about knowing the God that's within the book and having a relationship. And it's so easy, you guys, to get caught up on those other three things. To be bibliologists, where you're making Bible an uh, an idol or making a leader an idol or making a church an idol. No, it's about encountering God and worshiping him. It's knowing the God of the angel armies. It's knowing our savior that we just celebrated this last week who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's about the name above all names. And so that's why the fill in the blank that you thought I would never get to, because I always leave it till the end, is that you possess wisdom when you know the source. You possess wisdom when you know the source. When you know God, that's the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, instruction, wise dealing, prudence, learning, right? All these things that it's talking about. And so the fear of the Lord, it leads us to a proper view of ourselves and allows us to truly learn and surrender to God. We are able to express that I am not God and I recognize that I do not get to make my own moral compass of what is right and wrong which is what our world right now does all the time. And so living as Christians, we're supposed to be distinctive. We're supposed to sit there and go, no, I know who the authority is. I don't control how gray things are. I know the God who has determined wisdom. I don't own my life because life itself is a gift of God. Read Acts 17 verses 24 to 28. And so we're supposed to have this receptive reverence, acknowledging that all wisdom comes from God and knowing God. And we are mere stewards who will have to give an account of God 
account to God of what we have done with his gift. But look at what verse 7 says, because it's given us all this constructive, telling us how we can live in wisdom and know God with the fear of the Lord. And then verse 7 says, but wisdom and instruction fools despise. Which means that there is another path. It's dumb. One of the titles I was going to use for this message is, no fool for you, come back one year. <laughs> Seinfeld reference. And uh, But this term despise that fools do, it's, it's a power, powerfully packed word because it means to not only hold us insignificant, but to trample with the feet, to reject and ignore and belittle and say, none of this has value. So to take everything we're talking about and go, none of this has value. None of this matters. That's just foolish. And that is an option that people take all the time. But we don't want to do that because we want it to be different in our lives. Amen. And we want 2019 to be different. And so after you read all this and you get to the end of verse 7, it's actually wanting to take you now back to verse 2 and go, now let's read this again with the concept that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's talk about wisdom and instruction and wise dealing and prudence and learning and words of it, right? But it's saying now think of that all from the reality of knowing God. Now, We've talked about a lot of things and I want to wrap this up so you can get out of here. But one of the best things we can do when we're talking about wisdom to put it into action is to give you some practical tips. Because let's be honest, you cannot go from here knowing 12 more Hebrew words and it does anything in your life. But let's give you some practical tips of what we can do, especially in this next year. So number one, remember that God provides himself so that you can live wisely. Every time you're faced with something, any and all decisions, surrender them to him because he has provided himself and his spirit is within you and near to you. Number two, take what you learn and know and understand and be active with it. Practice wisdom in everyday life. That means learn when to speak and when not to speak. That means learn how to do that with your spouse. Learn how to do that with your kids. Learn how to do that with your coworkers. A lot of you are going to go back to work this week if you haven't already. And you're going to go back to work and now you're going to have to relearn all of this again. And you're going to go, what does that look like? And I have to keep saying, how do I take what I know and practice it? And again, we have to be reminded that wisdom that is not practiced, that doesn't have an outward manifestation is arguably no wisdom at all. Number three, Live a life that's ready for inspection. And what I mean by that is take it another step forward and ask yourself, and I encourage you to ask two people that know you very well. And some of you are going, I'm not asking my spouse. But to ask them, do you think I'm living wisely? And I want you to be very clear when you say that to someone else. Make it clear. I'm not saying, am I living successfully? Am I living wisely? Am I living wisely with my kids, with my spouse, with my extended family? Am I doing that with my coworkers and my social interactions, interactions? Am I practicing wisdom as I scroll and as I share and as I post and as I click and as I tweet? This goes into every corner. Number four, and this one seems so obvious, but think things through to their logical conclusions. Just use your brain. <laughs> 
carefully consider the decisions and the actions you make. But what you've seen as we've gone through this is consider them not just for yourself. How is it going to affect everyone around you? Parents, the decisions you're making, how are they going to affect your kids? Husbands and wives, how is it going to affect your spouse? At your job, are you making decisions that you know are good for you, but it's going to destroy seven other people? At your school, take that into every corner because we're supposed to look at the implications of everything we do. That's wisdom. And part of the destruction we've seen in our city, region, state, country, world, always has to do with people that they're not thinking through the implications for how it's going to wreck everyone else's lives. And that's where sin and pride have just steamrolled and we see so much chaos. And so think things through to their logical conclusions, size up situations and act appropriately. And number five, keep adding to wisdom. It needs to be cultivated as well as practiced. And that's where you have to understand that you can grow in wisdom, but never capture it because you're living in a complex and changing world, which means that you can never retire from wisdom or take vacation from wisdom. You're always needing to learn and pursue and value and practice it. And so realize that you are wise beyond your years. You can be wise beyond your years. And remember James 1.5, you can ask God and he imparts that wisdom. Because he has given himself. That's what Christmas was. So let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything in this year, good or bad, that we've encountered. And we thank you for being a God that's faithful and a God that provides wisdom. And God, we stand here as people that want wisdom afresh as we go into 2019. God, teach us. Reveal yourself to us. Show us that we can know you and that knowing you with that reverent, loving fear is the beginning of us living out faith and belief and wisdom. And God, may you be honored and may you be glorified as we draw closer to you and then we live out wisdom to a world that is so absent of it. And so God, I pray that you would bless these people as they go from here. Give them an amazing last 24 hours plus of this year and may 2019 be different for everyone. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.